We titled the message this morning, What Hope When Slaves Promise Freedom? Second Peter chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 form our text. And it says, While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. In our study of the epistle of Second Peter, we've been looking at the warnings related to the danger of false teachers. The Apostle Paul warns along with Peter about this in Paul's second epistle to the young preacher Timothy. Paul wrote this, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come for Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth-breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such, turn away. For this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lust, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Second Timothy chapter 3. In our text here in Second Peter, Peter expounds on this danger and he warns us about the false teachers that fall into this category that Paul has defined. And while it's important for us to know about false teachers, Peter helps us understand the process so that we might avoid the stinking thinking of human viewpoint that will sidetrack us from our growth and any kind of stability in our Christian walk. So while it's important to understand how to recognize these false prophets, we must better understand the process by which they got there so that we might avoid that and be able to experience uh, a fellowship with God in our day-by-day walk. So look with me at the text here beginning with verse 19. Then as Peter says, While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome of the same is he brought into bondage. While they promise, 
The word that is used here is participle, which always defines or introduces to us a principle, that these make it a principle to keep on promising to those that will hear them freedom. The false teachers make it a principle to develop promises that will appeal to their audiences. And so we need to be careful of those that will make promise to us. The value of a promise is found in the character of the one making the promise. A promise is no more valid than the character behind it. And of course, that's the reason why when God said that never again would He destroy the earth by water, He said, I put my bow in the cloud in the day of rain to affirm to you and remind me. He didn't say remind you. He said, God said to remind me of my promise. It's not that God's forgetful. It's that we need to be assured that God is alert to what He has stated and that it's going to continue. And the sign that He gave of that promise, of course it's been stolen in our day, is the sign of the rainbow. They had, they would not have been able to steal the sign of the rainbow if Christians really understood what the sign was all about. Oh yes, most Christians know that it was placed there as a token after the flood. But again, it's based on the character. And it is the affirmation of the character of the one making the promise for the seven colors of the rainbow identify the seven attributes that form the essence of God. Or you can find other attributes that you might add to the list, but they all fit into one of these seven as it identifies the character of the one making the promise that we might understand it. He's the only one who can promise us anything and we have the assurance that it's going to occur because when we make promise, we can't control the circumstances that are around us. We cannot control other people. We can't under, uh, control the situations that develop. We can't even control whether we'll be here or not or perish in death or make a transfer into His presence for those of us who are believers. So our promise is contingent upon the will of God and what God does. So we need to be careful when people come promising to us. You can't lose with the stuff I use, a former preacher said on the television all the time. But we need to recognize that God alone is able to fulfill the promise. And the point that Peter makes here is that while they make it a matter of principle to keep on promising to them liberty. Who is the them that is identified here? The them is anyone that is willing to listen. They're those that make up their congregation or their audience. To promise them liberty. The Greek word eleutherion identifies freedom. That's something that we're all looking for, is freedom. 
It's easy to find an audience if you set up a banner of promising them freedom. That's what got Satan in trouble. You may remember before man was created that Satan wanted to be free from God. He wanted to be free from his Creator. And so he said, I will ascend into heaven. I will establish my throne above the Most High. I will be like the Most High. And then that's the bill of goods that he sold to Adam and Eve when in the garden he said to Eve, has God said you could eat of all the trees of the garden? Well, all but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we can't eat of it, we can't even touch it. That was a threat of their freedom. And Satan said, no. She said, God said we'd die if we ate of that. And he said, no, you won't die, but you'll become like him. You'll become like God. And that desire for independence and freedom manifested itself in the first sin of mankind and resulted in a fallen nation, a fallen race of people, a fallen people. So when the offer for freedom comes, we are quite susceptible to it. The thing that Peter points out, however, is that while they make it a principle to promise freedom, they themselves are servants of corruption. The false prophets and the false teachers who promise freedom, Peter said, are themselves slaves by choice, slaves of their old sin nature. They are the servants, is the King James phrase. Matter of fact, the statement, they are, is again another participle, which means another principle. These teachers, these false teachers, make it a principle to offer freedom, to promise freedom to those that will follow them, but they also make it a principle to continually be themselves servants. The word servant is a watered-down version of the Greek text. The word is doulos, which means a bond slave. It identifies one who is a servant by choice, who becomes a slave by his choice to be enslaved. That's the word that's used here. While they promise freedom to their congregations, they themselves, as a matter of principle, are slaves themselves. Well, if we know anything about the slave market of the ancient world, we know that a slave could not purchase his own freedom. A free man was the only one who could purchase a slave. Jesus said, Whosoever commits sin is the slave of sin. So in reality, we are born in the slave market of sin under the domination of our old sin nature 
which we receive genetically in our physical birth. And I'd like to say through the women, but it's not through the women. The Bible says it's through our fathers, through the male, that that genetic nature is passed on. That, of course, is one of the primary reasons for the virgin birth. That by bypassing the man in the virgin birth, then we were able to have the Holy Spirit come upon the virgin and she conceived. And no old nature with Adam uh, as he was created. And now no old nature with Christ as he is born. Adam fell in his nature because he ate of the forbidden fruit. And had Christ uh, violated any norm or standard that God had established for His work and His ministry, He would not have been qualified to go to the slave market. But He was born outside the slave market of sin. Romans chapter 6, verses 16, 17, and 18 says, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants, that's the word doulos, slaves, to obey His slaves you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the slaves of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, ye become the servants, that is, the slaves of righteousness. Through His death and His resurrection, Jesus went into the slave market of sin and paid the ransom to redeem us from our old nature. In our study of the doctrine of redemption, we have identified four different Greek words that are used in the New Testament in relationship to this purchase that the Lord made of us to redeem us from our slavery to sin. Let me quickly summarize what we saw in that study. The word agorosthete means to make a purchase in the slave market. In the New Testament, it speaks of Christ, agorosthete. He went to the slave market and ransomed our redemption. The Greek word lutrosetai means to pay the ransom that's needed to redeem us. No other man was qualified to pay the ransom for all are sinners, but Christ kept Himself from sin and was qualified then with His own blood to have the purchase price to redeem us from our iniquity. Lutro Satai emphasizes the payment. Apolutrosis emphasizes the deliverance. As a result of Christ paying our debt All mankind can be redeemed. It's a matter of accepting the redemption price and walking out of the slave market by faith in Jesus Christ. Ex agorosin is the fourth word that's used relative to this translation or transaction at the slave market. Ex agorosin means to purchase a slave and to set him free in such a way that he can never be enslaved again against his will. 
That's a marvelous idea that the Lord had in mind that when He paid our debt, He paid whatever might be in the future as well. The only way that we can be enslaved again is to volunteer to be a slave. That bond slave, doulos, that we find in the Scripture. We have the opportunity to become bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, even as believers, we can choose to continue to submit to our old nature. To continue to allow our area of weakness and our lust pattern to manipulate us and control us, but it's by our free will that such a thing can occur. Servitude to the old sin nature, that is our natural tendency or disposition to sin, for believers is now a matter of choice. Before salvation, we were slaves of sin. We were born in slavery. It's our natural disposition to sin. Nobody had to teach us to sin. It's natural to us. But in salvation, Christ's payment was applied to our account and we can never be enslaved again against our will. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? When the Good Samaritan took the man that had been wounded and left for dead to an inn and took care of him, the next day when he was leaving to continue on his journey, he went to the innkeeper and he said, this is the money to take that I owe you for allowing us to take care of the situation here with this man. And if this is not enough, when I come back through here again, I will repay you for whatever further is there. That's that egorostate idea of being delivered from the slave market. Our debt has been paid past, present, and future. So that never again can we, against our free will, be enslaved. Now that's uncomfortable when we think about it. Because that means when we commit sin, we can't say the devil made me do it or, or I've got an old nature, I couldn't help it. We've got an old nature and the devil baited the trap, but we have to make the choice. We find then in Peter talking about those who promise freedom, these false teachers promise freedom, and yet they themselves are enslaved to sin. It says they are the slaves of corruption. Phosphoros is the word that's translated corruption, and it takes on a variety of forms that is determined by our own individual lust pattern. There are three patterns of lust, one of which you have dominant in your life as a result 
of your physical birth. Sensuality, materialism, and ego. The statement is made for of whom a man is overcome, the same is brought into bondage. So this statement shows the process is illustrated here by Peter in quoting a very common proverb of Peter's day that said, For a man is a slave to whatever he has mastered himself. Those are the words that are translated, For whom a man is overcome, the same as brought into bondage. They come from the same statement. A man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. The thing that overcomes us is the thing that puts us in bondage. Each of us with our area of weakness and our old nature must be aware of that, that there is an area where we are most susceptible to sin. There are some temptations that hard to understand by us who have no weakness in that area and wonder how in the world could they make such a decision and how could they be taken in by such a thing. On the other hand, there are those whose area of weakness is there and they look at those with self-righteousness and wonder how in the world they could develop that kind of self-righteousness. The power and the authority of sin is taken away at salvation. The power and the authority of our sin nature is taken away at salvation. But His presence remains. He's lost authority No longer are we victimized against our will by that old nature, but now we must deliberately make a choice of whether to submit to the old nature and to our lust pattern in our area of weakness or to resist. The old sin nature was taken away not from our presence, but by His authority and power, and we must always remember that. So now, following salvation, we can only be enslaved, we can only commit sin by choice. No longer can we blame the devil for it. Peter says, for of whom, literally by whom, A man is overcome of the same, then is he brought into bondage. Overcome. This takes us back then to the old sin nature from whom the authority over our nature has been taken away, but where we can voluntarily submit ourselves as bond slaves. The perfect tense that's used here has been overcome indicates a completed action in past time and the result continues. We have authority over the old nature. 
but we continue to be seduced into submission by faulty choices. He says, by what we have been overcome, to that same initiator, whatever our area of weakness is, whatever our lust pattern is, to that same initiator then comes our own bondage and being overcome. James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 are key to our dealing with the issue of sin as believers says, but every man is tempted. First of all, it says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, because God tempts no man with evil. And then he says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death been some time since we've been through this passage in your presence. And I would remind you that the terminology that is used here is a physical conception. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, and when lust hath conceived. The seductiveness of our old nature and of the uh, and the fallen angelic hosts that are running around laying temptations out before us, they know what your area of weakness is. They understand your lust pattern. And so they lay at your doorstep those various temptations that will appeal to your old nature. Before you were born again, you had no resistance. All with a lot of herd mentality and and other tools of psychology. We try to work with those circumstances, but we find ourselves victimized by it. But now it's a matter of choice. And yet that old nature and our lust pattern and our area of weakness are of such that we are tempted when we are drawn away through our own lust pattern and the the word entice means to a baited trap. We are drawn to that baited trap. And when lust conceived, when conception occurs, that occurs when your free will says, okay, I'm going to do it. I've got First John 1.9 <laughs> to get me off the hook and I'm going to do it. Now, most of us don't make that conscious of a decision, but we need to get to the place in life where we do make that conscious of a decision. Because in reality, that's what's taking place. When the temptation and your free will submit, conception occurs. And when, and then it says, it bringeth forth sin. Sin is the result of your giving in to the temptation, your submitting to it, whether it be in thought or action or in word or deed. It is your submission. Conception occurs, sin is conceived. And then he says, and when that sin is finished, 
the word finished means when the time of gestation has reached conclusion. That's the terminology that's used here. When the gestation period has reached its finish, it brings forth death. Now be careful. Because we always have to remember if we're going to rightly divide the Word of God that when we handle the Word of God we need to know what it says. We need to know what the context is in which it's said. And we need to harmonize it with every other passage of Scripture. Well, this verse says that when we submit to our old nature that it brings forth death. There is a gestation process there, and the result is death. We have eternal life. How then can we be included in this? Well, the Bible identifies seven distinct deaths that are used in the New Testament. Seven different uses of the same word, death. So we have to harmonize and contextualize in order that we might understand it. There are seven kinds of death. Physical death is the separation of your soul from your body. That's going to occur at some point down the road. Physical death, the separation of the soul, the id, the ego, the you that lives in the physical body. Spiritual death is the separation of the individual from God. Positional death is that Christ's death is accredited to our account. When we receive Christ as Savior, we become positionally dead. That is, uh, His death is credited to our account and we are declared holy and without blame. Temporal death is when there is unconfessed sin in our life, our fellowship with the Father is broken. Operational death is the inability of the believer to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control are the fruit of the Spirit. Operational death is when we're out of fellowship with God, when there's unconfessed sin in our life, then the Holy Spirit does not have that freedom in our life and does not produce the fruit of the Spirit. That's operational death. The inability of the believer to produce the fruit of the Spirit through the operational control of the Holy Spirit. The second death is eternity. The lake of fire and brimstone is identified as the second death. And then there is reproductive death. It's the individual's inability to procreate physically. The Bible says that Abraham was dead when Isaac was conceived didn't mean that he was physically dead. didn't mean that he was spiritually dead. It meant that he was sexually dead. He had no, no ability to procreate. 
but God gave him that ability. And so it was, in fact, reproductive death, natural inability to procreate. Well, which death is used here in this passage in James that when we consent with our free will to the temptation in our old nature, when we consent to that and conception occurs, and as that is formed, it issues death. An interesting thing about this term in the Greek text is, remember the whole passage deals with physical human conception as an illustration. When it bringeth forth death, literally it brings forth still birth. That which is born is dead. Because when we commit sin as believers, the operational uh, power of the Holy Spirit is quenched in our life and uh, that which we give birth to is still born. There is no production, no live production when we are out of fellowship with God. So, the father of the prodigal son when the prodigal son came back, while he was out on the pigsty, he said, I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me a hired servant. Because there wasn't a hired servant in his father's house that didn't have bread enough and to spare. So I'll go back and I'll become a hired servant. When we get out of fellowship with God, our doctrine gets all distorted. Once a son, always a son. But he went back to the father, and while he was yet a great way off, the father saw him and ran and, and fell upon his neck and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. May... That's as far as he got. The father stopped him. Make me a hired son. No, the father stopped him and called for a, a robe. A robe, a toga virilis that identified him as an adult member of the family with all the rights and the privileges. He called for a ring that would give him asset access to the family assets. He had all those rights while he was away in a far country, but he couldn't exercise them not being in his father's house. The father said, This my son was dead and is alive again. He wasn't physically dead, but rather he was productively, operationally dead. The fellowship, the temporal death of fellowship and access to the family account and all that went with that was not available to him in the far country. They were his, but they were back at the father's house. And so he was restored to his adopted position. Remember when we studied the, the adoption as we find it in the New Testament, it's not talking about taking a child that is born to other biological parents and making that child yours through a legal process. That's what we 
view adoption as. But in the Roman world, when a boy turned 14 years old, he was considered a mature adult. Went on the family account. Had the right to get married. Had the right to join the military. Was now eligible for the inheritance and had a voice in family affairs. Any 14 year olds you want to bestow right to your family assets and all of that? That's the Roman war. You, you for that? <laughs> well, it's an intelligent way to look at it. The identification is the rights that belong to the natural born child. We're born of our Heavenly Father and we have these rights, but when there is unconfessed sin in our life, the temporal death, the fellowship with the Father, and uh, the benefit of access is limited. So, Peter says that those who are promising freedom to you are they themselves enslaved because that which overcomes an individual is the same as that which places him in bondage. For the unbeliever, no choice in the action. Choice to become a believer, but no choice in dealing with the old nature. But for the believer, for you to be seduced by the old nature, you have to consent with your free will. The believer's faulty choices result then in our submission to our old nature. The very thing that enslaved now results in broken fellowship with God and can only be restored by acknowledgement with God through the confession or the naming of sin. The younger son said to his father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. That confession restored him to fellowship. The objective in using 1 John 1 9, which I see as one of the rituals of the church age, it is a ritual in the sense that we are instructed that we are to confess our sin. That word confess we see as homo legato, it means to name it. It means to tell God what we did. (laughs) Does God not know what we did? Certainly God knows. Apparently we didn't know. Oh, we knew, but we made a faulty choice. And it's the acknowledgement of that. Now look at verse 20. For if they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. This is a tough verse. (laughs) 
Peter writes some things that are hard to understand. He said that about Paul, that Paul writes some things that are hard to understand, and I've said to you before, I don't have near, near as much problem understanding what Paul wrote as I do what Peter wrote. I guess because of on the same wavelength with Paul, and uh, I have to work twice as hard with what Peter wrote to understand it and its application than what Paul wrote. So I sweated over this one all week. You may not see a problem with it. My job to show you a problem so I can be needed to show you the solution. <laughs> it begins with the word if. For if, that is a first class conditional clause. Now, after the exposure you've had through the past year or so here, hopefully you'll start picking up on some of these things and asking that question yourself when you look at a text. If the word if is used, if the word if is used, whenever the word if is used, there are four different conditional applications of that in Greek grammar. The first conditional clause, the writer is saying, if, as is the case, this is true. If he uses the second conditional clause, form, and expression of the word in the grammar, then he's saying, if, but it's not true. If he uses the third class, he uses a totally different word, and it says, if and maybe it's true, maybe it's false, I don't know. It's not stated by the writer. There is a fourth class where he says, if, and I wish it were true, but it's not. And there's only one place in Scripture that the fourth place, uh, the fourth class condition is used. And, and that's where Peter said, if you're suffering because of your righteousness, you'll be happy. I wish that were the case, that you were suffering for your righteousness. You're not. <laughs> you're suffering because of discipline <laughs> in your life. And we know that by the use of the fourth class conditional clause. All of that to say this is first class. That means if and it is true. If having escaped the pollutions of this world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled therein. Who's the they? Is the they the new believer that's in the congregation of the false teacher? Or is the they the false teachers themselves? Well, if you like commentaries, Bible commentaries, you can find a variety of, of statements as to what it is. They're divided over the issue for a number of reasons that I won't go into here, but some say the word they is a reference to the new believer, while others say it's a reference to the false teacher. Now, you didn't have a problem with that until I created it. But if we take a grammatical approach, which you know by now is how I approach Scripture, 
then the word they is clearly a reference to the false teachers. Those who believe this is a reference to the false teachers, everyone that uses the Greek grammar of the basis for biblical understanding would agree these is a reference to the false teachers. For if these false teachers, if and they have, have escaped. Well, let me show you the problem. If, as is the case, they have escaped the pollutions of this world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and again become entangled in those things and am overcome, then their latter end is worse than the beginning. Are these believers? These false teachers, if they're believers, then it says their latter end is worse than their first. Well, that's not true of a believer. Because a believer can deny ever knowing Christ and still his latter end, he's in heaven, freed by the grace of God. So, these are those who have escaped. That sounds like a believer. What did they escape? They escaped the pollutions of this world. They escaped the pollutions. Now, the problem generates and is compounded when we get to the last two verses in this chapter which are scheduled for next week. Because there are those who say, well, they, the word that is used here, epinosis, How did they escape? They escaped the pollutions or the defilements of this world through the knowledge. That word knowledge is not gnosis. It's not the normal word for knowledge, for knowing something or inquiring into something. The word that is used here is epinosis. It's almost, almost, always, almost always, used in reference to the applicational sense. Gnosis is to have knowledge. Epinosis is to understand that knowledge and how it relates to one's circumstance. You have heard me emphasize to you that we have to develop our left frontal lobe. That in the right frontal lobe, we have comprehension where understanding, communication and understanding occurs in the right frontal lobe. But it's in the left frontal lobe that our behavior is directed or dictated. We have to move the knowledge from the right frontal lobe to the left frontal lobe. We do that by what I call faith transfer. We put our faith in it. And then it becomes epignosis. That means knowledge that is understood and applicable. 
So these false teachers, because their latter end is worse than the first end, cannot be believers. They're acting the part. They're teaching. But yet the word epinosis, they came to a full understanding and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but they never made that commitment. How did they escape them? Why does it talk about their escape? From what did they escape? The word pollutions, miasmata, in the Greek means defilements. This is the only place in the Word of God that this word is used. It doesn't identify sin. It identifies philosophy human viewpoint, mindset. The Greek word, as I said, is used only this one time in the Greek New Testament. And it identifies human viewpoint, philosophy, and the mindset of a pagan society. See what it says, the pollution of the world. Literally it says the the defilements of this world system. The word world is cosmo. Cosmo identifies the world system, the world order. Who is the God of this world system? The Bible says Satan is. He is the God of this world system. God Himself acknowledges that Satan is the God with a lower G of this world system. The world system is full of misconceptions that seem practical or even logical in human viewpoint or human philosophy. Human viewpoint and philosophy in the pagan society was rampant in the day that Peter writes this. And these teachers have now become exposed to the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But by the outcome, we know they never made that provision. They were set free from human thinking with having now an understanding, a clear understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's His deity That's His being the Savior of the world. That's His being the Messiah. And that is His being the man called Jesus. They came to understand that, but they embraced it not. They were seduced by their own nature and they went, uh, they have departed from the teaching that they found concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord and Savior. There's a Greek rule of grammar that when you have two nouns, Lord and Savior, and those nouns are identified then of the same case and the same gender that is speaking of the same person. Lord and Savior, it should be Lord even Savior, which refers to His role as our Redeemer, and then identifies Him, Jesus, His humanity, 
Christ, his being the Messiah. So they've come to a full understanding of that, but they've again become entangled. They've become entangled. Now, some of the scholars would say, but look at the word entangled, it's passive voice. It's passive voice. So they were acted upon to become entangled. Well, while it's passive voice, look at the fact that it is masculine gender. The masculine gender indicates an initiation of the action on the part of the noun that is used there. They have initiated the act of submitting to the old nature and uh, have again been defeated. So that their latter end is worse than the beginning. It would been better had they not come to that full understanding than to come to that full understanding and reject His position as God and as Savior. The verses should read this way. Making it a matter of principle to keep on promising to them freedom, they themselves are continually being slaves of corruption. For by whom anyone has been overcome, to that same initiator he has been enslaved. For if, as is the case, they made it a matter of principle to escape the defilements of this world system by means of full usable knowledge concerning the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, again, as a matter of principle, they become entangled by these things, having been overcome, the last things have become and continue to be worse by comparison than the first. Let's see how it applies. In our text, Peter has expounded then on the danger of false teachers. And while it's certainly important for us to recognize false teachers so that we can identify them, the important thing is that Peter goes on to help us understand the process by which this departure has come from the truth. See, it's important for us to understand the process so that we can avoid the stinking thinking of human viewpoint that can sidetrack us from our spiritual growth and stability in our own daily walk. First of all, we need to recognize, be able to recognize false teachers. Now, in recognizing false teachers, there's absolutely no substitute for having a firm understanding of truth. And your ability to recognize what is false will be in direct proportion to your understanding of what is true. False teachers rely on biblical ignorance of believers of which there is a famine of the Word of God. We find that in the Old Statement in the Old Testament and it's certainly true in the New Testament. For while we talk Christian philosophy, we fail to look at the principles and the techniques that are found in the Word of God and identify them and then put them into operation in our life. I, I used to encourage my dad to do more of that and 
He said, Troy, every time I do that, my congregation gets smaller. I don't have a lot to lose. <laughs> Will you two go away? <laughs> but uh, that's true because there are people, I've been told hundreds of times, I wanted to come to church. I didn't want to come to seminary. Well, depends on what you call church because I believe the church is to be a seminary. It is a place to learn of God the techniques and the truths that we can apply to our life. A common identity of false teachers is their desire to make merchandise out of believers as we saw in our earlier study. According to that study, they're motivated by their lust pattern in their old nature, whether it's sensuality or whether it's materialism or whether it's pride or ego is dependent upon the makeup of that particular teacher. Now, according to our text, false teachers were promising freedom. And of course, that's a frequent ploy because there's such a desire for our own independence and to be free. I heard yesterday on a television program, a news program, one of the ladies was talking and she said, it's basic desire of each human being to be free, to have freedom, not to have somebody telling them what to do. Yeah, well, it's a result of Adam's sin being perpetrated down through the years genetically. The process is important. It's imperative that we understand the anatomy of our old sin nature so that we don't become volunteer bond slaves to it. We all have an area of strength that produces human good. Now that's human good, and it doesn't prohibit us then from needing to receive Christ as Savior because our human good is described in Isaiah 64, 6 as filthy rags. We've investigated that in the past. The word is used menstrual rags. It was in the Levitical law that a woman could not during her monthly period go to the temple, pray, make sacrifice, make offering to God. She couldn't do it for that seven day period. So when we attempt in our human good to please God, it bars us from a real relationship with God, from praying and from fellowshipping with Him. We have an area of strength that produces human good. It varies from human to human, as you know and have observed. We also have an area of weakness. Now, that area of weakness is the area where we are most susceptible to temptation, to personal sin. We all have a besetting sin, an area that we are most susceptible to temptation. We also have a trend. Now, we don't get to order this up as we began to live life 
so that we can choose our area of strength and our area of weakness and our trend. We are born with it. Blame your daddy for it. Doesn't mean you have the same nature that your daddy did. It means that your that nature you have came through the pool of genetics through the daddies in the past. Through the male of the human race, the old nature is passed on. And you inherited a trend. You're either a do-gooder by nature, or you're a sorry, no good, licentious individual by nature. Now, there are varying degrees. Some people say, well, I'm right in the middle. No, you're not. <laughs> There's one side or the other, but it, there are varying degrees of do-goodism and of immorality and licentiousness. You also have a lust pattern. And it is either an obsession with the satisfaction of the senses that is identified as sensuality, or it is an obsession with materialism. You've got to get material things. You're obsessed with material things. Or it's an obsession with ego or pride. I love those individuals who say, well, you haven't identified me. I don't have any of those. Try the last one. <laughs> pride and ego. <clears throat> we all have one. Now, that's the area where our lust pattern is where Satan baits the trap. Now, Satan doesn't probably never personally be in, been involved with any one of us. He's only one being, supernatural, but one being. But uh, I doubt if he has personally been involved, but got minions by the millions. <laughs> got he took a third of the angels with him in his rebellion. And they are assigned to us and they are the ones that know what our area of weakness is. They're the ones that know what our lust pattern is. And they bait the trap that appeals to us. We as believers understand this and identify it but there is a thing called reversionism that gets us. Reversionism is a term that describes our coming to a knowledge of the truth and then abandoning that and reverting to our previous behavior. Because God's program is based on grace, we abuse it to the end. Well, I've been told I've got First John 1, nine. To bail me out if I get in trouble. If I do it, I'm in trouble, but I'm going to do it. And I got First John to bail me out. It'll work, but be careful of the discipline. <laughs> you have a loving father that knows those things are not profitable or beneficial for you, and uh, he will use the cat of nine tails or whatever he needs. He says, the scripture says, he disciplines each son that he receives. And part of that son, that discipline that is described in 
the word of God is to skin alive, mastigoi, to skin alive with the whip. So, we can revert back to the old human thinking as these false teachers had. As believers, <laughs> we can't revert without consent on our part. I've had individuals that have thanked me again and again for teaching the ritual of 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just in order to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The, the, the peace that I have, some have exclaimed, as a result of knowing that when I confess it, it's done and I'm back where I need to be and back under the operational power of the Holy Spirit. And I've always cautioned, well, it's great to know that, but be careful. What should I be careful of? You should be careful that there will come a point in your life when you will resent confessing it. Oh, oh no. No, that won't come. No, I'll never resent the fact that I can confess it and it's done. No, be careful. Because in my experience and observation, that there comes that time when folks routinely confess every sin as it occurs, as they recognize it in their life. They confess it to God. The word confess, homo legeo, means to tell God what you did. What? Doesn't he know what I did? Well, of course he knows. He wants you to know. What do you mean? I already know. No, you haven't grained that full knowledge that it's not beneficial. You keep confessing it. You're going to come down to the point where you identify where your old lust pattern is. You're going to identify what your area of weakness is. And then you're going to say, well, why should I confess it? He knows. And that resentment develops. You have to work through that because that's part of the baited trap that the minions of Satan utilize. And so, the process of confession is not for God. He knows all things. And He has graced you in all things. The process of confession is for us. We keep naming what we did. We find out we're naming the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. We have to deal with it or we have to revert and no longer make the confession. So don't stop confessing. You need the reminder so that you are to stay out of that neighborhood. Remember what James said. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And with lust has conceived, it giveth birth to sin, and sin, when it is finished with gestation, bringeth forth death. Operational, temporal death, broken fellowship with God, 
and a lack of power with God. You're taken in by the offer of false teachers that appeal to your lust pattern. John chapter 8, Jesus said to the Jews that believed on Him, these are Jews that believed on Him, if you continue in My Word, then are you My disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. There is the promise of freedom, but it's only in knowing the truth. And apparently these false teachers had gained a full understanding of the divine viewpoint of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And though they had escaped their human viewpoint philosophical teaching, they did not call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. They did not appropriate to themselves as we will see in our study next time. For it had been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than after they have known to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them, according to the proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. I met a man in Southern California who was pastor of a sizable church in San Bernardino. He acknowledged to some, not his congregation, but he acknowledged to some that he was an atheist. He acknowledged to me that he was an atheist. Pastor of a church. I saw some of his sermons. They were biblical in the content that was there. I said to him, if you are, you do not believe there is a God. He said, no, I do not believe there is a God. Then why do you preach the gospel? He said, because our society could not survive if we didn't have the morality that the gospel teaches. He didn't preach the plan of salvation is in Jesus Christ. He taught biblical principles. And biblical principles are fine and dandy, but you can still go to hell following biblical principles if you've not received Jesus Christ as personal Savior. He said without the Ten Commandments, our society would be a muck. Well, must have been a prophet. It looks like it's a muck today. And the Ten Commandments have been removed from our classrooms and public places. My point is, he had a knowledge, he had an awareness of principles that work and control a society, but he denied the author of those. I don't know if you ever came to the point of receiving Christ as Savior. I met Him through that revival I shared with evangelistic meeting I shared with you a while back and which there were 78 individuals that received Christ as Savior and 38 were atheists, professed atheists. He was in that group. And that's how I met Him. 
I don't know how many members of his congregation knew he was an atheist. He didn't seem to hide it all that much because he believed the principles of the Bible are what we need. No, it's the person of the Bible that we need. The principles will help us get along here better as we apply them. So it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the beginning. We have that beginning We're delivered from the slave market. Not from the temptation, but from the authority. And when we sin, we must recognize we made a deliberate choice to do that. Let us confess it. Let us name it. Let us tell God what we did so that He knows we understand that it's sin, so that we acknowledge to ourselves that it is sin in order that we might have a victorious life, a life of peace and joy, a meaningful life, a life of service to Him. 